few weeks ago, we, uh, pre I preached through Proverbs 5 through 7, and we skipped over a small section in, uh, in chapter 6. And so last week and today, we're cleaning up, we're going back and picking up those two uh, sections. Last week, we looked at uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, about the cosigner uh, and about the sluggard, the lazy one. And in this entire section, uh, Solomon is warning his son about characters that he should avoid. Characters he should avoid. And this section concludes with a third character. Uh, the first one was the indiscriminate giver. The one who squanders resources uh, by giving it to people who are, un, uh, are, are not going to be worth um, that resource or are not going to use that resource well or wisely. The second one was the lazy person, not to be that person and to avoid that person. And today we're talking about the worthless person. It's a, uh, a, a, a person who uh, sows discord and brings division, tries to tear down what is being built up. Uh, I just visited with Sophie and Isla a minute ago. I had to consult them uh, because there's a game that I've seen uh, our kids play uh, called Among Us. Have you ever heard of this game? where there's a group of people and they're all uh, working toward assignments or goals and there are two imposters or a group of imposters among them that are trying to work against the group and the group has to pick out who the enemy is or who the imposter is, who is secretly, surreptitiously working to tear down or destroy or kill uh, within that group. That's what this describes, the worthless person. So let's read together Proverbs 6, 12 through 19. And we're going to learn more about the worthless person that we must avoid and that we must not be like. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Father, your word tells us that you are building us up into a body of believers. This church and worldwide, you are assembling the pieces and the parts of your body, of your bride, of this building with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. We thank you that you are building us up. And we ask in Jesus' name, as you build your kingdom, that we would be warned and that we would be careful of the gossip, of the divider, 
and of the one who sows discord and tries to tear down what you are building up. In Jesus' name, amen. A 1991 movie that had an impact on me. Uh, You may or may not have seen it. It's called Boys in the Hood. And it was a coming-of-age drama that follows um, a young man named Trey Stiles, uh, played by Cuba Gooding Jr. And he is uh, raised in uh, Crenshaw in south-central Los Angeles. And his father... Furious Styles, played by Lawrence Fishburne, um, is deeply embedded in a dangerous neighborhood. And he is somewhat of a leader in this neighborhood. And as his son Trey comes to live with him, Furious Styles is constantly warning his son, trying to lead his son through the difficulties and the dangers of influential teenagers and the dangers all around him. There are uh, gang members that are close to him. There is an athlete named Ricky, and there is his girlfriend, and there are a number of other characters that Furious is trying to help his son navigate through this dangerous minefield of South Central Los Angeles. And through this very difficult period, Trey avoids all the pitfalls of gangs and violence and revenge and danger and gets out and is able to make something of himself. It's a spoiler alert, but it's 30 years old, all right? If you haven't seen the movie, uh, it's, it's your fault, all right? It's not my fault. This is the same in Proverbs. Solomon is warning his son. He's warning his son passionately about people to avoid, the dangers of people all around him, who to stay away from, who not to become like, those with whom your children and teenagers spend time with will dictate, uh, they will take on those character qualities. This is very important as a parent to children to help them navigate the pitfalls of friends that they choose and who they spend time with. Here in this passage in Proverbs, the father is warning the son to steer clear of the wrong people. And in this particular section, like I said before, he's giving him warnings about particular people. The adulterer, he's talking about uh, the one who indiscriminately gives money to the lazy person, and here he describes him as a worthless person. The worthless person. That's the general warning of the person to to avoid at all costs. These two sections are connected. If you look back at your text, verse 12 describes the worthless person and verses 16 through 19 also describe that same person. They're not two different people. The Lord hates the worthless person. Uh, these two are connected. If you see in, uh, in verse 12, their speech and their tongue are both connected in verse 12 and in the latter section, verses 17 and 19. Their eyes are connected. Look at verse 13. 
winks with his eyes. And then again, in verse 17, in the next section, he has haughty eyes, prideful eyes, arrogant eyes. The feet are described in verse 13, signals with his feet. And then again, in 18, mentions feet that run to devise evil. Their hands are connected in verse 13. They point with his finger. And then again, in verse 17, hands that shed innocent blood. And then the heart is also connected in verse 14, a perverted heart devises evil. And then again, in verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans. These are not separate sections. You might've previously read this as two separate sections, but those body parts uh, are used in both sections, which connect them to the worthless person. This is not an exhaustive list of the things that God hates. It's just a list of things that connect them to the worthless person. I keep messing this word up, but I learned that it is a synecdoche. Is that right? Julie's nodding. Yes, she helped me uh, say it all night yesterday. What's a synecdoche? I probably messed it up. I'm going to stop saying it. <laughs> it's a literary term that uses a part to describe the whole. If I looked out into the parking lot and said, uh, that's a nice set of wheels you have, none of you would think that I'm referring to a wheel in itself. You would understand a synecdoche, whatever it is. It would be the wheel describing the car as a whole, right? That's what a synecdoche is. I swear, I'm not going to say it anymore. I can't swear, but I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say it anymore. That's what he's using. He's talking about eyes. He's talking about hands. He's talking about feet. And it's not describing the particular body part that is responsible for the worthless person. He's talking about the worthless person's character in general. And each of those parts represent the whole, the speech, the tongue, the eyes, the feet, the hands, the heart. This is describing the totality of a character that is completely worthless. He gives seven marks of a worthless person in verses 12 through 15, and then echoes it in seven parts that the Lord abhors. He, it's an abomination to him. He despises this. Now, when I was a new believer and I was new to the Bible, in those early days, I, I was shocked to read these verses. I was brand new to Christ. I was brand new to the Bible. I was new to church. And I had experienced a God of grace and mercy and love. And so for me to read something, I remember in that first Bible, you had those old neon highlighters that you would highlight and they bled through all the pages, right? Uh, I had that in the whole New Believer kit, a leather zipper carrier, and you would put all the church programs in the sleeve and, and there were three or four pen slots for your highlighters and all that. And I remember reading this passage and just highlighting in different colors, hates. And it struck me as odd that God would hate something. It went against all that I'd experienced of this loving and gracious and kind God that I'd come to know. But we understand that it's a necessity. You can't have a God who loves to the extreme that God loves, who doesn't also hate. A God who hates is good. There are things that we should hate, right? When you witness injustice, when you witness uh, abuse, when you witness something terrible, 
For God to be indifferent about that is not God of the Bible. God is a God of absolute hate for all things evil. And this passage confirms it, that there are things that are an abomination to him. He hates and he also loves. And this passage describes some things that he hates and it is called the worthless person. The worthless person is someone that God hates and is an abomination to him. So I want you to listen carefully to this passage that we may repent well of anything in this passage that the Holy Spirit highlights as something in our own lives lest we experience the hatred of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Proverbs 16, 27 through 30 will echo this same passage saying a worthless man plots evil his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife. A whisper separates, a whisperer separates close friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that's not good. And the one who winks with his eyes plans dishonest things. And he who purses his lips bring evil to pass. This is the description of the evil person, uh, the worthless person that God despises. And it's the Hebrew word Belial. And it's translated worthless, but some of your translations might say vile. Uh, I think the, uh, the King James Version says a naughty person, a troublemaker, a scoundrel. But it's the Hebrew word Belial. It's used in other places to describe an insurrectionist. Uh, there's a difference between an insurrectionist and a, um, a riot or a coup. The insurrectionist is the one who starts it with their words. And this is the word for Belial. It's a troublemaker. It's used in scripture to describe a worthless person. And it describes the entirety of their character as being worthless. Infected throughout. These aren't bad qualities of an otherwise good person. It's an utterly corrupt individual. And it describes for us Romans 3.23 that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. At one time, we were all in this category. But there are particularly evil, wicked people that this is describing. In Scripture, you find the worthless man, the same word Belial, they lead people away from God and toward the worship of idols. That's in Deuteronomy 13.13. 13. And before they went into the land, it was said that if there is a worthless person in a city that leads the city away into a false worship or into the worship of idols, that entire city is to be burned and stoned and destroyed for those worthless ones who lead the people astray. The worthless person in 1 Samuel 10.27 leads against the governing authority that has been established by God in the anointed king. God had set a king over them and the worthless person led an attempt to overthrow or rebel against God's good governance. The worthless person opposes and thwarts injust justice while committing Injustice. Think of Jezebel in 1 Kings 21, 
Um, her husband wanted Naboth's vineyard. And Naboth said, I don't want to sell it. And so Jezebel said, why are you, why are you down? Uh, this uh, wife said to her husband, the king, why are you so down? And, and he said, I wanted Naboth's vineyard, but he turned me down. And she said, are you not the king? And so she said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Within a few days, it'll be yours. And she set a feast, invited Naboth, and invited two worthless fellows, Scripture says, who accused him publicly of of committing idolatry and of speaking against the Lord. And Naboth was instantly stoned. And within a week, the vineyard was his. Jezebel thwarted justice while committing injustice using that same term worthless. They commit atrocities against the community. In 1 Samuel 30, 22, David has led his men to overthrow uh, an army that has captured their own people. And many of his army, just having coming back from fighting an army in 1 Samuel, um, when they ha- had to leave some men behind, they were tired and they couldn't go into the battle. The remaining Uh, army overthrew that army, recaptured all their goods and their wives and their children. And when they came back, they did not want to give the spoil back to those soldiers who didn't fight with them. And they're described as the wicked and worthless among David's men who would not share the spoils with those who stayed behind. David reversed that and said, the ones who watch the bags also get to share in the wealth of those who Uh, go into battle. There are other passages that describe this. Uh, Eli's sons, Phinehas and Hophni, were described as wicked and worthless men. Bruce Waltke notices that because of this idiom, the the worthless one is used of such a wide variety of perversions, it signifies a quality of character, not necessarily a specific perversion. Later, it would come to describe a devilish human in Jewish literature. And in the New Testament, you probably thought of this verse, those of you who uh, remember this passage, the only passage in the Bible where Belial is mentioned is all the way back in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. And in that passage, um, Paul is warning them against a believer um, marrying an unbeliever. And he says, not just a believer marrying an unbeliever, but a believer uh, being in any sort of partnership with an unbeliever where the two are committed together. And in 2 Corinthians 6.14, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has their righteousness with lawlessness? For what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's the passage. It's the only place where you'll find the word Belial used. And it was this same word as the worthless person equated with Satan himself. So let's look at the end of this person, who this devilish person is so that we can ourselves be warned not to be like this person and to steer clear of this person. And if you're a teenager or if you're a young person and you're choosing your friends, you'll know what to avoid in this person. It's a worthless person, a wicked person. And let's start at the end. 
Sometimes you'll read a blog post or an article, and at the very top of it, it'll say four letters, T-L-D-R. Anybody see that? T-L-D-R is for people just like me. It means too long, didn't read. All right? You don't want to read it all. It just gives you the one sentence summary. Well, when we skip to the end of a book and read the last passage, I would never do that. I would never read the last chapter of a book before the end. But, but this is kind of the idea. Let's skip to the end. Let's get the TLDR here. What is this person like in the end? The end state of the person are in chapters, verses 15 through 16 of Proverbs 6. It says, calamity will come upon this person suddenly. In a moment, this person will be broken beyond healing. And in verse 16, the end of this person is that the Lord hates this person. They are an abomination to him. What's calamity? Calamity is one of those old words that we don't really uh, understand or hear every day unless you are watching a play or Calamity Jane, you're like Westerns or something like that. Calamity is a word that means a disastrous event marked by great loss and lasting distress and suffering. Now think about the homes that were destroyed in Mullica Hill last week. Tornado drops out of the sky, hits the ground for a little while, and completely tears apart a house. That's a calamity. Job's story is a story of calamity, total loss of family, finances, and health that suddenly came. The end of the worthless person is that God will hate them and that there will be uh, the discord and the division that they tried to sow within uh, or to, to bring about the division they tried to bring out in what God was building. It will turn back on their, their own self. There will be a boomerang effect for a lifetime of sowing discord and division and gossip and continuing on this path of breaking and tearing down what God builds, it will come back on the person with intensity. It's intensified by the fact that God says, I abhor the activity of this person. So now that we've seen the end, let's, let's get into the marks, the characteristics of this person. Look at verses 12 through 14. Seven marks of the troublemaker or the worthless person. Uh, number one, it's a wicked person. A wicked person. It's the same word described as evil. We'll get to the evil part in just a few minutes. The second aspect of this person, they have crooked speech. Crooked speech is the second one. It's uh, repeated again in verses 16 through 19 in two ways. Verse 19, a false witness who breathes out lies. In uh, verse 17, a lying tongue. Let me just tell you this, that the worthless person has twisted, warped language. They exaggerate truth. This person maligns truth. This person is fast and loose with their evaluation of an event or a situation. They are often caught in lies. They lie repeatedly. They twist and distort the truth. That is what crooked speech is. It is false language. Language that is used by Satan himself in the garden. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree? No, that's not what he said at all. Why would you... 
Why would you take what God said and pervert it and twist it? That's the speech of the worthless person. Everything they say, you think, do I have to fact check this? Is that, is that what everyone else says? Is that what really happened? Is, there's always a sense of doubt when words come out of the worthless person's mouth because you don't know if you can trust what they say. You don't know if what they're describing actually happened or if that's their interpretation of the event, but they are always engaged in crooked and wicked speech. The next three characteristics, they wink with their eyes, they signal with their feet, they point with their finger. These three particular um, gestures depict communication that is planned ahead and known to other troublemakers in an event to insurrect it, uh, or cause a riot or overthrow something good. It, it defines the, the ganging up in that game that I talked about earlier um, among us where there are imposters. They aren't working together necessarily in the game, but in this uh, passage, the wicked, worthless people work together to single, uh, to, to, to work together in communication and in unison to tear something down. Number six, they have a perverted heart that devises evil. It's repeated in verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans. It has an element of planning involved. There is intention. There is uh, purpose and planning that goes long before it. The feet that run to evil, they are quick to jump in to evil. They don't hesitate to jump into evil things. And they continually sow discord in, um, in verse 14, and then it's repeated again in verse 19, they sow discord among brothers. I don't know if you've noticed, but our country seems to be at a time of intensified discord. Have you noticed that? Anybody? Right. Yeah, sure. Sure. All you have to do is open your eyes. All you have to do is wake up and, uh, and somebody's mad at you for something you did or didn't do. Or there are groups of people that are ganging up or are trying to sow discord. That's one of the chief characteristics, that and corrupt speech of the one who is sowing discord. When I think about this passage, in the same way that happened to me last week, I once again had to adapt my own understandings to what the Lord defines. I don't know that I would have defined this as an evil person, as Satan himself. I thought, why the harsh categorization? In many ways, we look with mild curiosity from the outside looking in at someone who is uh, being divisive. It doesn't seem like something we can't really handle. It feels like an irritation at a troublemaker. But when you're a leader and you're trying to build something, and someone within an organization or a group or a team is actively working against you to tear it down, that mild curiosity or mild irritation um, goes away and, and you can be outright angry. 
at somebody. I remember telling our core team when we first planted Ridgeline, and not everybody, we don't want everybody to come to this church. Even our gathering here, we don't want everybody here. It's not open to everybody, right? Jesus said that Satan would come and he would um, plant weeds among the wheat. He said that an enemy will come and plant weeds among the wheat. That at the end times, there will be a a, um, separation from those within the body of Christ, those who were imposters and apostates, that Satan himself sent into a church to create division. There are people that we don't want within the body, people who are here for nefarious reasons, people who are actively seeking to abuse children or others or lead people astray. We don't want that. Can you agree to that? There are people within the church that are sent by the enemy that fit this categorization of evil, and the Lord hates it. He hates them. The one who sows discord seeks to undo and destabilize and overthrow what God is building. You think about Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah 4. Nehemiah is sent to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And Sanballat and another guy are constantly pecking and chipping away and distract and tear down what Nehemiah is called to build. You think about the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, 6 through 8, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord was the one who was the agent dispersing them. The Lord is the one tearing down the evil unified plan to build against him. And it's in reverse now where the Lord is building something. The opposite of the Tower of Babel is Acts chapter 2. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews and devout men from every single nation under heaven where they had been dispersed. Now they come together and at the sound, the multitude comes together and they're bewildered because each one of them was hearing what? A single gospel message in the same language. What the Lord dispersed in Genesis 11, which was evil and against him, and what Satan was trying to build unity in this rebellion against God, now in the Holy Spirit, in the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, God is bringing together all peoples from all languages, from all nations, in together in one group, and they hear a unified gospel message. And they're amazed by this. And so God is building something called his church, his body, his bride, and the wicked, worthless, evil person who has infiltrated the church sets out to divide and scuttle the church on mission. Listen to the divisive language of the person in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. There is a sin list that describes the works of the flesh. And just listen to the works of the flesh. They are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, 
strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, enviness, uh, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He listed 15 obvious evidences of your sinful flesh. And you might have missed them if you weren't paying attention. Eight of them had to do with divisiveness, evil, worthlessness that is described as what God hates in Proverbs 6. Eight of them relate to the tearing away at the unity of the community of Christ followers. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries within the body of Christ, dissensions, divisions, and envy. What Jesus desires to unify, the worthless, evil, wicked person tries to tear down within the body of Christ. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. In the priestly prayer from John 17, Jesus prayed for our unity and our oneness. He said in John 17, 20 through 23 in his prayer, I do not ask for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their witness. I pray that they all may be one. Just as you and I, Father, are in me and I in you, I pray that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus says our unity together is what will win a world. People will look at us in curiosity. They're different. They come from different backgrounds. They come from different nations. They speak different languages. Their socioeconomic background is different. Uh, All these things are different, and yet they're unified in Christ Jesus. It's that unity that he prayed for. He said, I pray that the glory you have given me, that I have given to them, and that they may be one, even as we are in one, we are one, I and them, you and me, and that they may be Come perfectly one so that the world will know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. But the worthless person from Proverbs 6, through lies, they pervert the truth with crooked speech and they sow discord to break up the unity of the community. This is why sins like gossip, jealousy, envy, strife, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy are so serious in a church. We gravitate toward these rebellious sins, these extravagant sins and these sinless, and ignore the fact that you feel a tinge of jealousy for another person within the body of Christ at the grace of God demonstrated to them and not to you. You envy someone else's possessions or their relationships or their situation in life while at the same time you are angry at your own. In these sin lists, gossip, jealousy, envy, strife, rivalries, competition within the body of Christ, divisions, that's why they're so serious. Romans 1, 28 through 31. This is what God gives people over to in the hardness of their heart. It says they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. That's wanting something that someone else has. Malice. They're full of envy and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips. 
slanderers, and they hate God. They are insolent and proud and boastful, inventors of evil. And all these sinless, you find division, gossip, jealousy, anger. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12.20, I'm afraid that when I come to you, I'm going to find you not in the way that I wish you were, and you're going to find me not the way I wish I had to be. He said, I am going to find perhaps that there is quarreling and jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Did you see that list? He's not talking about orgies and drunkenness and wild extreme things. He's saying that when I come, you're going to find me angry because when I come, I'm afraid there's going to be jealousy in your congregation. I'm afraid there's going to be hostility toward one another. Listen, if I could, if I could, if I had hair, I'd pull it out. I get so irritated, church. I get so irritated that 1 Corinthians says we're to be ambassadors of reconciliation and we can't reconcile our differences in the body of Christ. I just It grieves me to the core of my heart that, that you would disagree with a fellow believer in Christ and that you would withhold forgiveness from a fellow believer in Christ or that you would get into a petty argument over something posted or something that you weren't invited to or something that somebody else was invited to, that that you would get into these petty disagreements within the body of Christ and it would destroy the fabric of the unity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to be on mission. Jesus came to seek and save the lost and he's given the church that mission and we, we... just uh, degrade our fellowship into these petty arguments about dumb things. We, we, we get into these disagreements. And how can we be ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation, showing the world that they can be reconciled to God through Christ when we can't reconcile our petty differences among ourselves? Why? Are we so afraid to go face to face and say to somebody, let's work this out. Let's let's get face to face and and you said something and I said something and and maybe it got blown out of context and we needed a a 24-hour period, but the Bible says not to let the sun go down on our anger, so let's come together because it's important that we work out our differences. We don't do that well. And I'll just be real honest with you, this church doesn't do that well. There are a number of occasions I can think about immediately over the course of the past year where little factions have grown up and conversations have been shared and, and miscommunication and misunderstanding and a group goes off by themselves and, and echo and exacerbate and amplify until a conflict is blown out of proportion and this group won't talk to that group because that group said something to this group and, and it just tears away at the fabric and we're supposed to be on mission. God has caused us to be salt and light in this community, to reach a lost and dying world for Christ and we're too busy arguing amongst ourselves. Those are the sins to confess. Those are the sins that destroy a church and keep it from missional living. None of you set out 
to divide and scuttle the mission of this church. There's not a single one of you who wakes up and says, I can't wait to get to church today. I'm just going to mess with folks. <laughs> I'm just going to hold bitterness and, and I'm not going to talk to that person. I'm not going to make eye contact so I don't have to talk to them. And if they're coming this way, I'll, I'll go the other way. That's the kind of stuff that destroys a church. Who among us seeks to pervert the truth with crooked speech, to lie about situations and events, to gossip about others, to be jealous and envious? Who is it? Who among us is so conceited and arrogant? He says, haughty eyes is what the Lord hates. It's literally, the Hebrew word means rising eyes. It means my eyes, I'm too good to look beneath me at people that I think are below me. I won't associate with that person because they're beneath me. That's the arrogance of pride. Who is conceited and arrogant and boastful? Don't point to anyone. (laughs) Don't answer out loud. These are rhetorical questions. Just understand that Proverbs 6 pronounces the wickedness of the troublemaking, worthless person. And such were some of you. Listen, this is the beauty of the gospel. If in anything I've said over the last little while, if you see yourself negatively in Proverbs 6 or in any of the other passages I've read, in Christ Jesus, you can say, that's who I was, but thanks be to God, that's not who I am today. That's who I was. I was that way. I was caught in my own pride. I was jealous. I was envious. I was uh, divisive. I was angry. I was a gossip. And I tore down what God was building up, but that's not who I am today by the grace of God. That's what the gospel allows you to say. For those outside of Christ, for those who have not given their life to Christ, they still operate in this way as a pawn or a tool of the enemy to divide and destroy the church that God is building up. But in Christ Jesus, if you've seen these negative qualities in yourself and in these sin lists that I've read, You can say that's not who I am today. Jesus died not just to forgive me of my past sins, present and future sins, but also his resurrection power gives me the ability to overcome those sins. You don't have to walk as a gossip. You don't have to be a liar anymore. You don't have to give crooked speech that everyone wonders, is that really what happened? Is that really what they said? Or is is this an exaggeration of the truth? You don't have to get into factions of people that you like and that like you and that you're going to stay in a group. In Christ Jesus, the dividing wall of hostility is broken down between Jews and Greeks, between the righteous and the unrighteous. We are able to have fellowship with one another because of the cross of Christ. You don't have to be in Christ, in a church with people who look like you, act like you, talk like you, and have everything in common with you. That's, Jesus didn't die to make you comfortable in a group of friends. His sacrifice was not to give you a social group, but a people to live on mission with, that proclaim the gospel to everyone in this area that says, how can those people who are so different walk together, worship together, and love so well together? Such were some of you. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you know what that means? You don't have to be the way you were before you met Christ. He transforms a person. Not so that you can walk in your old ways, but that you can walk in newness of life. You remember when we baptized people? You're buried with him in baptism, and we are raised to walk how? New life. Changed. Transformed. Different. Not perfect, but not who you were. By the grace of God, you can say that's who I was and such were some of us, but in Christ, we are different. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, that's Belial, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among who we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and then we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By faith in Jesus Christ, you are not what you were. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we collectively are not who we were. So why would this church be marked by factions and divisions, and gossips, and those who speak crookedly, and perversely, and wink, and shuffle their feet. I don't even know what all those things, but why would we do all those things? Why would we be that way? Everybody's going to be walking around with their eyes wide open, not just winking at anybody. All right, don't wink, it's a sin. It's not what that passage is saying. But why would we be marked as people who have been given the ministry of reconciliation, and we can't even reconcile among ourselves? I think the application here is very simple unless you haven't been paying attention, I think the application is get right with people within the body of Christ. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Confess your own jealousy, envy, rivalry, dissension, your own contribution to gossip, your own contribution to scuttling the church on mission and making it a personal social club. 75,000 people within eight miles of this location self-identify as not belonging to a church at all. We're located 90 seconds off a turn a highway where 55,000 people drive by every single day. We have the message of reconciliation. We have opportunity to minister to people in our area, and we're too busy being jealous of, of another person in the church and gossiping against them. Listen, we are not a church on mission when we are divided like this. Recognize the worthless person among us, and if it's us, confess it and get right. And by the grace of God, we will, and we will overcome, and by the grace of God, we will demonstrate to a lost and dying world 
The Jesus, the gospel is what unites us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. As difficult and painful as it can be at times, uh, you chastise and you bring discipline and you bring correction. And you tell us each not to try to remove the speck from our neighbor's eye while we have a log hanging out of our own eye. In many ways, this sermon was not meant for others to say, yes, I hope they heard that. (laughs) As much as it was a message to say, Lord, help me to hear that. In which way have I contributed by walking in my previous ways, the ways of the world? In which ways have I contributed to the division and to the fragmenting of the body of Christ so that everyone who sees knows that there is a fight brewing within the church? In what way have I contributed to that? And in what way do I need to make that right? In which ways am I like the worthless person from Proverbs 6? In which ways do I tear down what you're trying to build up? And have I, like the wicked servant that was forgiven of all their sins, and then refuses to forgive a fellow servant for a small number of sins? Have I become like that wicked servant from Matthew 9? Have I withheld forgiveness and grace and restoration from someone who has sinned against me? Lord Jesus, would you let it not be so? Would you cause us to make things right within the body of Christ? so that we may bring honor and glory to you. And so just as Jesus prayed in John 17, so that by our oneness and our unity in the gospel, the world may know that there is a Savior among us. The world may know that uh, as such were some of us, and yet he redeemed us out of a broken way of life and brought us so that we may walk in a new life. Lord Jesus, would you let it be so today? We ask it in Christ's name.